Hello, you're listening to The Culture Ball, where we tramp through the woods of arts and culture. There's frost on the ground, and the air has turned cold. We're only a few weeks away from Christmas. Before I am toppled by a tower of mince pies, lulled into a stupor by vintage songs and musicals, while reason and a generally dependable work ethic prevails, I turn to two recent releases in non-fiction books. I begin with Orwell, The New Life by DJ Taylor, published by Constable. It's a comprehensive and highly readable biography of a writer whose status only seems to grow with every passing decade. Orwellian is part of our lexicon, as Dickensian is. In my research, I regularly encounter authors who were successful in their lifetimes and since have been almost completely forgotten. How many are celebrated beyond any contemporaneous buzz? Very few. And how many can lay claim to not only a continuing readership, but an aesthetic? George Orwell has succeeded beyond any measure. It's worth querying the value of a new biography when we have a good authority on someone's life, and Bernard Crick's 1980 biography is an example of that. In Taylor's case, new source material has come to light, but there are other reasons why we should welcome a fresh approach. Factual storytelling is subject to the mores of its time. Popular stylistic conventions of the time can also intrude. A biographer makes a stamp or impression with the material they have, and it's a personal stamp. The biographer is not a machine. They're guided by what interests them, just as readers are, and they will make choices. Two biographers could tell the same story very differently. Taylor has created a three-dimensional and sympathetic figure. Direct quotes from letters and remembered conversations reveal how diffident, how uncertain Orwell could be about his work. This humility is in striking contrast to Orwell's published essays, which can be strident at times, a writer revelling in a blunt or unflattering appraisal. If I'm to take one image away from Taylor's biography, it's of a tall underweight figure in a dimly lit room on Canterbury Square, sitting in a swirl of cigarette smoke. Taylor makes it clear how diligent Orwell was. In one year, he turned in 130 reviews of books, plays or films, and the arts journalism almost always supported the writing of a novel or non-fiction book. Orwell worked consistently through ill health, and as bombs fell around them in wartime London. There's often a public curiosity about how writers work. Where do they work? What are their hours? How long does a project take? What do they do in the writer's equivalent of a tea break? Some of this curiosity is driven, I suspect, not by a wish to uncover the conditions and environment of a writer's work, exactly, but the conditions in which they think. If a writer's work is good, their thinking is good, by which I mean it is lucid and focused. Writers also work independently, at least while they're writing, and independent thought, as opposed to thinking in a community setting, is particularly revered in the West. Beneath this curiosity about a writer's working life is another question. What are the ideal conditions for thinking? Or, what are the conditions for our best thinking? A biography of George Orwell may not be the place to look for answers, because he thought and wrote through circumstances no one would choose. He wrote in spite of his material conditions, through financial hardship, through a world war, after the sudden death of his first wife Eileen. He was editing the manuscript for 1984 while seriously ill. Taylor's biography is a reminder that in a life there's much that imposes on us and much that is painful. There is the beating heart at the centre of this book. 
all while addressed to the conditions in which we think much more directly than most writers. World events during his lifetime are a reminder of how much can be at stake. Free Thinking is the title of Simon McCarthy Jones' second book, published earlier this November by One World. Its subtitle is Protecting Freedom of Thought Amidst the New Battle for the Mind. Characterising a battle as new has a subtext. It immediately invokes technology, and it also suggests that a constant vigilance is necessary, that protecting freedom of thought is an eternal, relevant to every generation. McCarthy Jones is an associate professor in clinical psychology and neuropsychology at Trinity College Dublin, but anyone hoping for guidance on how to marshal their inner resources may at first be disappointed with this book's attention to legislation and the actions of contemporary governments. The author's wide-ranging approach is justified by his subject, but it also supports his position that we do a lot of our thinking together. He writes, We need to detonate the erroneous conceptions of thought represented by Rodin's statue. The thinker, always isolated and alone, is a mistaken, or at best, very partial representation of thought. It's true that our thinking, maybe our best thinking, is in response to something. Thought benefits from a stimulus, whether it's the voice of a friend or the natural environment. McCarthy Jones goes one step further with a strongly cooperative stance. However well-founded, the message is slightly at odds with his chosen medium, because many non-fiction authors and their readers are highly individualistic. Non-fiction books and self-help or self-improvement are natural allies. A reader is often working on themselves and focusing on the things they can control. For some readers, when they've met a life-changing book, what preceded this meeting was the understanding that they could not find the answers they sought in their community. Whether it was their initial plan or not, they have found themselves sitting and thinking alone, just like Redden's statue. In free thinking, philosophers are quoted alongside studies of human behaviour to produce a searching analysis of what we mean by terms such as free thought. We're also given useful definitions. An affordance, the author writes, is an opportunity for action that we see our environment as providing us. The context here is augmented reality and the potential for delegating thinking, or some of our thinking, to machines. Once we've delegated thinking, what does that mean for human cognitive development? Does it mean a shrinking or reduction in intellectual capacity? These are important questions, yet the definition alone is a gem. If I may repeat it, an affordance is an opportunity for action that we see our environment as providing us. It prompts me to ask, what is my environment telling me? McCarthy Jones also provides practical suggestions for how we use technology, and so ultimately his work empowers the reader, generating trains of thought that extend beyond the page. The impression free thinking makes, however, is slightly subdued. The author's voice is slightly subdued. This may be fitting, perfectly apt. Intellectual rigour here is more important than style, and it wouldn't do to fly the flag for free thinking, yet unabatedly tell others what to think. Or would it? The society McCarthy Jones advocates for is built on trust and respect. I would have hoped that there's enough trust and respect today for this author to have taken bigger risks, to make predictions that may prove in time off the mark, or to reject some of our technology more forcefully, as Jaron Lanier has done in his work, or to have drawn on voices without the status or recognition of Machiavelli, Kant and Nietzsche. 
To have the visibility they do is a great advantage, but so much visibility has one great disadvantage. It makes surprise nearly impossible. The pleasure of a surprise, or indeed its strategic value, is lost. Thank you for listening, and please do join me next time as we go into the woods with the culture boar.